Today I'll be preaching once again from the Old Testament, and if you have um, seen me preach before, 90% of what I've preached so far comes from the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament. I don't know why in this season I keep going back to it, but really, it's so amazing to read something thousands of years ago under such a different historical and cultural context, and then to be able to extract theological truths that apply universally up to today. And that, that's something that excites me. And so happened, I'm going to preach from uh, Genesis again this week. And, and it's, it's a treat for you guys because if you were around the last two um, weekends, you'll find that the last two preachings, uh, you know, by different people, all came from the same segment of the Genesis narrative. How many of you guys are here for this Chinese New Year weekend? And you remember the uh, sermon on the birthright and the blessing by Pastor Gwen? How many of you went to eat masala wheels since then? How many of you had banana leaf that day? Come on, give me a wave. I saw so many Insta stories. How many of you had soup that day? My wife dragged me to a place where we needed to have soup because the slide showing that lentil soup looks so delicious. And she's like, I need to have soup for lunch. You know, and so that was a story about Isaac and Jacob and Esau and the birthright and the blessing. Really powerful uh, sermon. And then last week, Pastor Vincent preached on the table of grace. And he talked about the story of Joseph. And Joseph is just the son of Jacob. And it all comes from the same uh, segment of the Genesis story. And so today I'm going to share from in between, in between these two stories. It's about Jacob and Leah and how when they set their hearts on things that um, were not of God and, and what it led them to and what, what kind of situations it led them to and how are we supposed to learn from that. Uh, the sermon title for today is a little bit corny. I don't know if all of you will get it. If you don't, it is my fault. My, my sense of humor is not amazing. Uh, my sermon title is called Yoda One for Me. Can we just show that on the screen first? You guys know Yoda, right? Master Yoda. How many of you are Star Wars fans? Give me a wave. All right. Just a few. <laughs> More this side than this side. I'll, I'll check out why later. All right. Here's, here's Yoda. You guys recognize him? I don't know if he looked quite like that in the, the movie, but this is a cartoon depiction of him, and I found it very cute, so Levi helped me to put it on the screen. And, um, and it, because it, Valentine's Day just passed two days ago, and the passage came from uh, you know, a place talking about romantic love, I decided to go with the Yoda one for me. And it was a little bit ironic because did Yoda end up with a, a life partner? Did Yoda end up with a soulmate? Yes or no? Do you know why he didn't end up with a soulmate? He's too short. Oh my goodness. Can I tell you guys a story? When I said I wanted to preach on this, Pastor John and Hui Yen, they said, uh, we've got a robe and a lightsaber ready for you because you are about Yoda's height. And, um, and I was thinking whether to do it, and then I realized... It's already so hard for you to take me seriously. Imagine the whole time, you know, and I'm waving around a lightsaber. How are you going to take the word seriously? So I said, ah, I'll sacrifice, even though that would be so fun. But the question is, why didn't Yoda find a soulmate? Why? Any, any answers? Any answers? All right, can you switch a slide for the really profound answer? He looked for love in Alderaan places. And Alderaan was a planet that was destroyed by the Death Star. And that's what, that's what happens. Sometimes when we put our love in the wrong places, when we, when we put our hearts in the wrong places, it, it leads to disaster, destruction. Some Death Star comes along and zaps the whole planet to bits. And, and, and see, it all connects together beautifully. All right? And, uh, okay, that was just a fun intro. But we're going to continue the fun just for a short time, okay? We're going to switch to a quiz. And I'm going to give you the right for the next three to five minutes to use your phones. Take out your phones, open up your browsers. I want to see how you guys respond. In this demographic, in this statistical demographic, there's a few questions that I want to ask you. And then I want to see 
among you guys what you guys think, all right? This is a result uh, that will show in real time. Okay, so what you do is you type in menti.com, menti.com into the browser, very simple. And then when you get to that page, you can put in, wow, someone's already started answering. Uh, you can put in the answer, and you just click in, and immediately the results will be updated anonymously. Don't worry, your, your name will not show up there. You know, Darren says that he believes in the soulmate. Positive does not believe in the soulmate. You know, it won't come up with your names. It's completely anonymous. Everyone just answer. You've got about 30 seconds to, to complete the answers. Wow, it's quite a tiebreaker. Who's going to win? Who are you going to cheer for? All right, it's pretty close. This is like a... Uh, horse racing. <laughs> Place your bets. All right, 20 more seconds. Keep going. Keep going. Let's see who's winning. Wow. The no's are not catching up. The yeses are going, going, going. I think a lot of us recently got married in this hall, right? And uh, I'm wondering whether that led to more of the yeses. You know, and some of you are dating, yes, I see. Some of you are, have just proposed, right? Jimmy and, and Amos, okay, I, I know who you guys might be. All right, 10 more seconds. If you haven't answered yet, keep going, don't worry. There will be future opportunities to answer. And let's see who wins. Five, four, three, two, one. Okay, we've got 61, 63, oh, keep, keeps going. We've got quite a significant uh, margin more that says, yes, there is a soulmate, there is the one for me. And that means that in this demographic, there's quite a few of you that are romantics at heart. All right, can you take a look at the person next to you and look them in the eyes right now and say, there's a better chance that you are romantic in this hall Look at the, oh, there's a lot of guys that are very awkward right now. It's okay, you can practice with a guy as well, you know. <laughs> Daniel and Jason are having fun here. Look, in, look into each other's eyes and say, you're romantic. <laughs> okay, next question, quickly. More serious question, okay. What are the most important ingredients found in a healthy relationship? Don't worry if you can't read the answers down there. I'll read it out for you. But you will be able to see the, res uh, the answers in your phones. You just click three of those that you find are really important in a relationship. What do you prioritize in a relationship when it's talking about your own personal values, your own philosophy of, of relationship? Okay, and can we start answering? And we're going to take about 30 seconds to do this as well. Wow, wow. Let's have a look. The one that is winning is by far is good communication. That's a good one. I think that's, that's uh, maybe I should have put it last. Maybe it's just the most convenient one to click as well. We've got mutual respect, similar core values. Okay. I don't want to influence the rest of the responses. Keep going. You've got 20 more seconds. Plug, 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 plug. All right, keep going. But it's very clear how this hall thinks among the maybe 150 odd of you in terms of three clear winners. And I hope you haven't been influenced by the results that you've really uh, voted based on what you think yourself. Okay, keep going. Ten more seconds. All right, very clear. The three that I'm just going to read out one more time that are most important to this room in terms of relationships is good communication, mutual respect, and similar core values. So for guys here that are chasing girls, please take note. Let's see what else is a little bit more, a little bit important. Okay, 28 there is feeling authentic joy in the partnership. You guys have been watching Mary what, Kondo too much. You hold the person and if you feel joy, you know, or if, if don't, yeah, you don't spark joy, then, then you release that person, right? But no, I'm not going to, that's, that's not what my preaching is about, okay? So you need to feel authentic joy. 23 people said, when you can sit in silence together comfortably, I guarantee to you that these 23 people are introverts. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding, but maybe, you know. Uh, and um, so it's clear 
what the results are and what has taken overwhelming leads. Uh, I hope that the guys here have taken note. Let's go to the final answer. This one is really for everyone. For every meaningful, think about any meaningful relationship in your life this year. It doesn't need to be a romantic relationship. It could be just your close friendships with your friends or with your family, okay? What is one thing you would like to do more of in your relationships this year? Try to keep it to a one-word uh, answer. And what happens is the more popular words will begin to grow, grow, grow. The, wow, the less popular ones will begin to shrink, shrink, shrink. <coughs> wow. Wow, wow, wow. All right, keep going, keep going. Keep, whoa, whoa, keep, all right, I didn't expect this, but I'm glad that this congregation is so open. It's growing, 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 okay. <laughs> I love this. You guys are open. Awesome. Keep going. 20 more seconds. You have your chance to answer. Come on. Come on. You can, you can try to dethrone the current biggest word. Okay, love is the biggest word. I like that. I like that. Okay, keep going. 15 seconds. Wow, wow, wow. Who's going to win this race? I like it. I like it. When it's anonymous, uh, when it's anonymous, it seems like you guys are a little bit more honest, and, and that's awesome, okay? Awesome. All right, 10 seconds. Okay, so we've got the three uh, winners here. Men, oh no, couples take note. I, I said, um, I said all all sorts of meaningful relationships. So I don't know, you know, I was, if you thought about your friends or your, your family, um, your parents, I don't know, you know, like, uh, but the top three obviously are love. Love is the, the, the clear number one. The number two is, is, is sex, you know, yeah, let's just say it out. And um, uh, I wonder how many uh, men wrote that and how many women voted that, but they don't break it down into those demographics. That would be interesting because it's most likely 100% men. Okay, and then um, <clears throat> pray. I like that one. Finally, we get a spiritual answer. That's why we are, we're in church. Awesome. Okay, good stuff. All right, we're going to get into the Word today. I hope you enjoyed that. If you guys want the results, there's a place to put in your email address into that thing. And I think that they send you a PDF. Okay. But otherwise, we're going to move on to the, the sermon, the more serious stuff. And maybe it's going to be fun throughout. And maybe it's going to be not so fun and a little bit more serious. We'll see. Okay. This one's not so serious. Move on to the next one. We're going to read the word today. Can everyone stand up? Everyone stand up. And... I always hear people um, talking about why we stand. In many of these reasons, you hear preachers say that it's because it's a reverential thing where you honor the Word when you stand. And there was something very interesting that Bishop Joshua Beng shared uh, just recently when he came to our church uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he said, um, he said uh, um, the reason why we stand is because even in the normal court of law, we stand when the judge walks in. And so what you're saying as a symbol when you stand, when you read the Word, is you're saying this Word has the authority and the right to judge our hearts, to judge our intentions, to judge our innermost being, to judge our innermost sins. It's got the right to, 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 to speak into our hearts, into our lives. Is that okay? All right, it's a narrative. It's a, it's a, it's a interest, very interesting narrative from Genesis. Let's read it together. Now, Laban... Oh, hold on. Do we say Laban or Laban? Huh? L Laban? Laban. Okay, Laban. Okay, Laban. All right, sorry. I wasn't sure because if any of you were going to be very, like, he keeps pronouncing it wrong, uh, then let's get that right in the beginning. Okay, one, two, three. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. 
Laban said, It's better that you give, I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but this seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, It is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah, and he worked for Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery, surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord has heard what I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. Before you're seated, let's just commit the word in prayer. God, we thank you for your beautiful living word that has the authority and power to speak into our lives no matter what we're going through, O oh Lord. God, may it just be like a double-edged sword that pierces to the deepest parts of our heart to reveal what you want to say to us today. Lord, we open our hearts for you to move in a fresh way, to speak to us in a fresh way. Let every word that is spoken speak, O oh Lord, whatever that you want to speak, O oh God. So we commit this, the rest of this time into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Don't you find stories from the Old Testament so interesting? And it leaves you wondering how certain things could happen, you know. If I were there, I would feel very puzzled unless I could see some of the context of what happened. And first of all, we're going to go into Jacob, Jacob's life, and then later on we're going to focus on Leah. That's the progression of this sermon. And even before this passage, we wanna, I want to go into a little bit of historical context for Jacob. From the point that he was in his mother's womb, there was already a certain struggle that he was going through. It says that she felt the two twins jostling inside her, her womb. One was Esau and one was Jacob. All right? And what happens is when Esau was born first, the first twin that came out, normally the next twin might come out in a, in, in maybe an hour later for natural birth. But what happened in this case is that Jacob was hanging on to the heel of Esau. And so they were almost born at exactly the same time. You know, one is hanging on to the other and they kind of like, boop, boop. You know, I don't know how that might work. I don't know how you want to imagine it, you know. For the men who have been into the delivery room, yeah, knock yourself out. But um, it symbolizes the struggle that they were going to go through, which was spoken about uh, by Pastor Gwen two weeks ago as well. The struggle for acceptance, the struggle for favor, the struggle for significance, the struggle for, for blessing. It symbolized all that struggle. And the interesting thing is that before they were born, God prophesied 
directly to Rebekah, the mother of Esau and Jacob, and he said, the older shall serve the younger. God was already declaring that the younger was, is the one that will end up with more favor and more blessing. And I think that as uh, Jacob grew up, he would have heard his mother talk about that, that God spoke to me that you are going to be the one that is blessed. You're the one that's going to be, you know, the, uh, the one where your brother has to eventually serve you. But what he saw in the physical was completely opposite. Imagine how he grew up under that family where Esau was undoubtedly the favorite of the father, Isaac. He said that he was a favorite in everything. He received the love. He received the favor. And he even said that he loved that Esau would bring home venison and wild game from his hunting. And the father would partake of that food and, and, and appreciate his firstborn son so much. Not only that, the society there in, in, in that family was that there was a primacy of the firstborn called primogeniture at that time. And so everything went to the firstborn first. Favor went to the firstborn first. Blessing went to the firstborn first. And Jacob had to grow up under the shadow of his brother, all the while hearing his mother tell him that he's going to be the one that receives the favor and the blessing. And you begin to understand why he had to go to such extreme lengths to deceive his father. Have you ever wondered when you read the, the passage in the, uh, the pre, in previously, just two or three chapters before that, where he had to, first of all, he, he made the lentil soup, you know, I hope you guys are not too hungry, and um, he, he cheated his brother Esau out of his birthright. And then he went to see his father who was not, uh, you know, well of sight, and he put on, you know, fur on his arms, he wore Esau's clothes so that the father could touch the, the, the hairy arms and smell the clothes of Esau and then be tricked. Why did Jacob feel like he had to go to such extreme lengths to deceive his father? Finally, he, he seems to receive what he wants. He got the birthright. He got the blessing, correct? He's already maneuvered his way. And he's like, okay, I've set my heart on this. Finally, I've at this point, after all that life, I've been frustrated and so bitter and so empty. I've got the birthright. I've got the blessing. And what happens? Suddenly, he's on the run for his life. Esau wants to hunt him down and kill him. And he runs away, far away to his, the land of his mother's relatives with nothing. He thought that the birthright, the blessing would give him everything he wanted but he's left with absolutely nothing, on the round for his life with nothing uh, in his hands. And when he arrives at that land, <clears throat> the first thing that he sees, he looks up and he sees the most beautiful, stunning, gorgeous girl that he's ever seen in his life. You know, the Bible is so interesting because it, 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 he even takes the time to... Uh, to, to describe not only the facial features, but the body as well. That's how clear the, author, the, the Hebrew author wants to be. Both her figure was attractive and her face was so beautiful. And the moment he saw Rachel, he began to channel all that hope and all that dream. Such a foreboding sign. When you channel everything into a girl... Ominous, I'm telling you, ominous, okay? And, um, and so, he channeled all his hopes and all his dreams into Rachel. And he said, I'm going to do everything I can to get this girl because finally, if I can get her, it means that my life has a meaning. It wasn't a waste. It's validated. Finally, something might go right when everything has gone wrong up to this point. No matter what I've done, no matter how much I've tried, no matter what I've maneuvered, everything has failed, finally I might be able to find it in my soulmate, in my one, Rachel. So he goes and talks to the father, Laban, and he says, I'll work for you seven years. And when you study uh, the price of that day, the, the standard pr uh, bride price is about 30 shekels, okay? And uh, the standard rate for labor of what he's doing is about 1.5 shekels a month. That means that when he says, I'm going to work seven years, 
He's providing an obscenely larger amount to what is the standard bride price. He's, he doesn't even want to leave any room for Laban to say no. He makes it so tempting and says, I'll do everything in order to get this girl because I love her and I want her. Not only that, you see that the Bible has described the wedding day in a way, in a language that is so rude, so crude, and so crass that actually Hebrew scholars for centuries have wondered why it's that rude and they're so uncomfortable with it. There's a real clear message the author wants to, to give because it's so uncustomary for a husband to go to the, the father-in-law and say, I've done my time. Uh, give, me, give me your daughter. I want to have sex with her. That's essentially what he's saying. Very clear cut, no gray areas. These are the words he is using in Hebrew. So clear, so crude. Can you imagine if some of you who are... <laughs> Some of you are married or getting married. If um, your, your fiancé, you know, if the guy goes up to your, your, your dad and he says, all right, it's time. Tonight, I'm going to have sex with your daughter. Oh, man, so crass, so uncomfortable, so awkward. And that's exactly what is happening. Do you know why the author leaves it in like that? It's because he wants to show how desperate Jacob was how fully consumed he was with both lust and love and affection and adoration. Everything had been channeled to this one object of his hopes and his dreams. That is what the author is trying to show here. He wanted her above all. And what happens? He works seven years, and it says it even felt like a few days because he was like, you know, so happy, so, uh, like, yeah, I'm going to be with her, I'm going to be with her, I'm going to be with her. And then... What happens to him? He gets cheated in the morning. He wakes up and he sees Leah. And I, I'm trying to figure out what, how that happened as well. Um, I don't know if, if any of you yam sing enough to the point where if the sister came into your room, uh, yeah, maybe I shouldn't go on. But uh, essentially, I just can't figure out how some of these things happen. It probably was a lot of drinking. There probably was a, a veil, a heavy veil that covered her, you know, structured out by the father, specially made. The veil, only she can see out of. No one can see back in, you know. And uh, oh, I just can't figure out. And in the morning, you ah, you know. <laughs> who, who are you? You just can't sometimes understand what happened, but, you know, let's assume he was a bit drunk. Let's assume that the veil covered, and then all these unexpected things keep happening to him. No matter how hard he works, no matter how much he maneuvers, everything keeps falling apart. His plans keep getting derailed, and sometimes we might find that in our lives as well. We set our hearts on something, we reach for it, we work for it very hard. At the end of the day, something unexpected comes along and we are left with Leah instead of Rachel. And there is such disappointment. And, and the things that hit us the hardest are the ones that we don't expect. Sometimes the ones that sabotage us are people that we don't expect to sabotage us our closest friends, our family, I don't know, our closest colleagues, and we don't know what's going on, and suddenly we are blindsided, and something happens that throws all our plans out of the window. Everything that we wanted to do just falls out of the window because of the unexpected things that happen. And as I was preparing the sermon, I, love, I grew up loving boxing. I don't know how many of you guys watched boxing in the past, follow boxing, no one. That's awesome. Oh, there's one there. Yeah, around my age. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> Boxing was something I used to follow. I used to follow, you know, um, uh, different types of boxes. You know, Muhammad Ali was an outboxer. He, he runs around on the outside. You know, you got Julio Cesar Chavez. I used to follow him. He's a swarmer. Okay. And then you got George Foreman. Um, and then you've got all sorts of different types of boxes. And of course, nowadays, there's Manny Pacquiao and there's uh, Mayweather and all those boxes as well. But one thing that you find as you listen to the interviews, as you read the biographies, as you read the quotes, the one thing they all say is that the punch that knocks you out is not the hardest punch. 
the ones that knock you out are the ones you don't see coming. Have you ever heard that before? It's a very common saying in boxing. That means that if you see the hard punch coming, you can brace for it, and you can take very, very hard hits when you are ready, when you are braced. But sometimes a soft hit coming from an angle that you don't see is the one that knocks you out, and suddenly you find yourself just laying, laying on the floor, and you're unconscious, and then you wake up, and you hear the referee counting four, five, six, you know, all the way up to ten, and you've got to struggle to climb your way up. And it's the ones that you don't see that knock you out. Same with life. And that's why they throw in all the different punches. It's not just a straight, it's not just a jab. That's why when they're, they're doing the one-twos and everyone is protecting, they suddenly throw a quick uppercut below and squeeze between their guard, knock the chin, they don't see it coming. Suddenly they wake up, they, they, they don't even know how they got on the floor. That's how it works. And as I was uh, thinking about all these boxing examples, since I love boxing so much in the past, not, not that I did it myself, uh, my wife wouldn't let me, um, but... Uh, but I realize that sometimes we approach life in similar ways to these boxes, okay? Some of us um, like to slug it out, you know? And we don't care how much life throws back at us. We just, like, tahan all the way, we get hit, and then we punch back, we get hit, we can't punch back. Some of us are like Muhammad Ali, and we skip around the outside, we, we work with our technique, and we make sure that we're jabbing, keeping them at a distance. We accumulate points in order to try to win it with strategy, with technique, with skills over time. But most of the time, outboxers like Muhammad Ali don't knock out the, the other person. You don't get instant knockouts, you don't do heavy damage. You accumulate points and, and damage on the other person slowly, strategically, tactically. And then there's the interesting one, which is the counterpuncher. And those are very exciting. You know, and there's two types of counterpunches. Counterpunches are those that um, when someone else throws a punch, you, you try to catch them at the point they're throwing it because that's the, least, the time they least expect getting a punch back. But the one that, the one that there's two different types. There's one where you move out of the way and then you just try to jab them so that you don't have a chance of getting hit. And there's the type where you lean in all the way his arm crosses with yours here, and then there's a double the power because he's coming in full force, you're going full, fo uh, full force forward. But what happens is whoever gets hit at that point is usually knocked out because there's double the power. And how we live our lives can leave us open to the knockout punch. How we, how we approach our goals can leave us more open to it. If we are a counterpuncher and we, we stake everything on that one punch, we're just waiting for that big wind-up, that big straight punch that we're going to slip under and then lean in and boom, all the way. If you get it even a millisecond wrong, you're knocked out. You get double the damage. You know, you get, you, you're completely knocked out. You stake everything on it. It might even overflow into your family, into your health, into so many things if you put it into a life analogy. Some of us are so scared of taking risks that we're just hopping around the outside trying to accumulate points, but we never get to hit a, a knockout punch. And so as we approach this, this game of life or whatever you want to call it, there are two factors right now that I want to talk about and summarize this point that will affect how easy it is for us to be unsettled by unexpected situations. First of all, it is what we set our hearts on, and we've been talking about that already. Second of all, it's how we approach the pursuit of our goals. How much do we risk? Is it the smart choice to go put, put your stake all in at that point of time? Is it a smart choice to lean back and do a tactical strategy at that point? Those two things can determine how hard you get knocked out, whether you get knocked out in the first place, and what happens to you in your pursuit of that goal. But one thing is very clear as I just wrap up this point, it is that whatever consumes your heart will control your life. Whatever consumes your heart will control your behavior, will, con will control what you do and how you spend your time. Okay? Next point. The second thing that really jumped 
uh, out. <laughs> you have broken every chain. The second thing that really jumps out um, at me is why Jacob seems to accept Laban's explanation. Have you, do you guys ever wonder that when you read it just now? Because Jacob storms into Laban's room in the morning and he screams at him. He says, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? He's furious. He's so angry. And then Laban gives a really weak explanation. He says, well, over here we have a custom. It is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one finishes the oldest bride a week and so on and so forth. Such, if you're in a, a court of law, if you're a lawyer, you will know that that's not a great explanation. Because it's very easy for Jacob to then go to maybe the court of law of that time and then just say, you know, this man f- defrauded me. He, he, he committed fraud. Everyone knew I was working for Rachel. I didn't hide it. We talked about it. Everyone knew what I was doing, what I had worked for. I even offered seven years, you know, which accumulated to so many times more of the usual bride price. I was willing to do everything. This man committed fraud, and he could have pushed it all the way. But the moment Laban says it is not the custom for the uh, older to, to be married before the younger, Jacob seems to back off. And you wonder why there's a, such a dramatic shift in that situation. And you have to begin to put the pieces together, why that happened. I think when Laban started talking about the custom, he was suddenly hit with how he had been growing up all these years. He had lived under the same custom and culture where the older brother was given precedence to uh, to, 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 the, to the younger brother, where the older brother was given everything first. And so he began to think back to his home, and I, I'm, even, uh, I'm even suspecting that as he uh, thought about the words that are still ringing in that room, which is, why have you deceived me? He began to hear his father's voice, Isaac, telling him, Jacob, why have you deceived me? It's a parallel of what happened to his father. And maybe he even thought back about his conversation with, his, with, with Leah in the morning. And he, he might have said to her, Leah, what happened? Last night in the dark, I called out Rachel and you answered. And then in that room with Laban, he must have heard his father's voice saying, Jacob, what happened? I called out Esau in the dark and you answered. Do you see what dagger would have stabbed into his heart at that point? Because finally, at that point, he realized fully what it meant, what it felt like to be exploited, to be deceived, to be cheated, to be taken advantage of, to be lied to. And it seems like he hangs down his head and, um, and he says, okay, I will work another seven years. And you can even see Laban plotting from the beginning. If you read the words of how he, um, he said yes to Jacob's uh, negotiation, he didn't say, yes, you work for me seven years and I will give you Rachel. Did he say that? Let's go back very quickly. He said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. Did he say yes? It's a very vague, positive statement. And many times when we hear vague, positive statements, we will latch on to the meaning that we want to hear. Sometimes our boss might tell us some vague, positive statements. Yeah, if you worked really hard, um, there is this opening coming up uh, you know, which could act as a promotion. And then you jump on it because you desperately want that promotion. You desperately want that career path. But the boss, your boss never actually said, you do this right, you deliver this project, I'm giving you this position. And so you've already grabbed on to that answer. You've already heard what you want to hear. And then at the end, someone maneuvers out 
of it, and you feel cheated. You feel like you've wasted your time, your energy, your years. And God seems to bring these kind of situations into our lives, for better or for worse, for good or, be- uh, for good or bad. He brings situations where we are forced to confront truth. And He brings them over and over sometimes, where sometimes we are not actually able to confront that truth if we were just to face it on our own. Because the hardest thing to do is to face the reality of who we are sometimes, how we've hurt people, the mistakes we've done, the way we've conducted ourselves which is not honorable, the hidden intents, the things that we justify, the things that we validate. All these things, God sees them as they are. We will find a way to cover it up and say, no, we're still doing all right with God. You know, He doesn't need us to change. He doesn't need us to transform anything in our character. But then God begins to throw more and more of these situations in our lives that force us to confront, maybe we have sown something wrongly. Maybe we have done something wrongly. Maybe in our pursuit of these goals that are on our hearts so vigorously, so passionately, we have done things along the way in order to try to achieve that designer life that God does not look favorably upon. And we have to keep learning these lessons. You know, sometimes I wonder how God's perspective in, in those situations are. If he, thinks that, if he feels that if He gives you that breakthrough and that blessing and that gift, you will come to depend on that gift far more than on God, should He release it to you or not? One of the things that really hit me when Pastor Gwen preached uh, about the prodigal son was that the good and perfect gifts of the Father can be the most destructive gifts in the hands of a son whose heart is not in the right place. We pray for breakthrough. We pray for all these things, but in our heart, we haven't even let go and said, God, I'm going to depend on you. You are my source. You are my sustenance. And then he's wondering, should I give you that that blessing and that breakthrough when it's going to make you into a weaker person, when it's going to weaken your faith, when it's going to bring you to a place where you're dependent on things other than God, when it forces you to uh, or compels you to, to, to be reliant on things other than God. Will that help you? There are things that as I reflect back in my own life, I don't have the time to go into detail today, but the more I preach, the more I'm going to tell you my story. There are things that I have realized that took 10 years for breakthrough when it could have taken one year. There are things that could have taken five years for breakthrough and, and, and release of favor, and it took, uh, you know, and, 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 I mean, it took uh, five years when it could have taken three months. And I'm not here to say I, I would get bitter at God for, for withholding that blessing because as I dig into the Word, I begin to realize that He does it because He loves us so much. Are you willing to receive every blessing but come away losing your salvation? What if you depended on money so much more than you depended on God? What if you no longer could come to a place of true dependence on God, authentic faith? Do you still want those blessings? Do you still want that breakthrough? Sometimes, and then it, it's, it's actually very hard to admit that those breakthroughs could have come earlier if I had just been more humble and allowed God to dig deeper within me and stop holding on to my own ways and my own thoughts and my own frame of mindsets. That's something not easy to admit It takes such humility. But if you're able to come to that authentic humility, the true one, you will begin to walk in such freedom and power to overcome, to move forward, to to receive healing, to receive breakthrough, to receive favor. I think this is an important point, and I'm going to end with the last point now. The most important point. Every point is the most important. We move to Leah from Jacob. This one, as I was um, 
researching and preparing from this, it broke my heart so much. When you read Leah's story, it's so heartbreaking. She seems like a victim throughout from start to finish. Just now I spoke to Anita about it and she just said, she's just like completely battered and, you know, destroyed and devastated. She seems to be at the beck and whim of her father, Laban, and um, with, with to Jacob. And it's such a sad state of affairs for Leah. But there's something that we can learn from her journey as well. First of all, she grew up under the shadow of her little sister. Her sister was so beautiful, the most beautiful girl in the whole city, the whole village. I don't know if any of you have sisters that are so beautiful <laughs> or brothers that are so handsome. I don't know, you know. I, I'm glad because I'm the more handsome brother in my family. I hope he doesn't see this video. Okay, and, um, and, and she lived under the shadow of that for so long. And it's so interesting how the Bible compares them. Uh, I don't even understand the comparison. And when I read into the, the, the scholars, they also don't know how to fully translate it because there are gaps missing in terms of the meaning. He says, Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. I, I don't know what comparison that is, you know? Like, they didn't say, um, Rachel had eyes like an eagle, she could see the ant on the wall walking up, you know, and, and, and then Leah had weak eyes. It said, Rachel was beautiful. Her body, her face was stunning. But Rachel, uh, Leah had weak eyes. And so something about her eyes made her unattractive. And she had to grow up like that under the shadow of a beautiful sister. You know, a shepherdess who went out and did the sheep, and you know, I, I guess when you, when you have to round up sheep, you also have to run, and then you are very fit also, I don't know. You know, and um, she lived under the shadow of that her whole life. Imagine how all the other men would have uh, pursued her sister and not her. How, how blessed are we today in today's society that a woman's look does not impact on her life and her trajectory? How blessed are we that um, society has matured so much that a woman's look doesn't impact what job she gets, what man she gets. We, we look far deeper, deeper within, all right? And, and that's how far our society has come. Um, <laughs> okay, I was being a bit sarcastic. I'm sorry. That wasn't very clear. I'm, I, I saw some puzzled expressions there. I saw Esther laughing, so she got it after a while. Yeah, all right? And... Um, but imagine how unattractive Leah felt. She was so unattractive that her father had to resort to trickery and deception to marry her off. How would you feel if you were Leah? I don't know, during Chinese New Year, did your parents do some trickery, invite someone over, some deception, and say, yeah, my daughter is very rich? Yeah, yeah. My daughter, uh, she goes for a run every day. Yeah, she's good, she's good. You know, like, does he, do they resort to any trickery? I've put a, a home, a bungalow, you know, under the name of my daughter. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was a bad one. Okay, and so, <laughs> imagine how she would have felt. My goodness, I, I, I was so heartbroken. And you find that Leah did the exact same thing that Jacob did. She made Jacob the object of her hopes and her dreams. Do you realize that? She did the exact same thing. Finally, this man was going to give her meaning in her life. Finally, her life would have some purpose. She didn't have to live under the shadow of her sister anymore. Finally, finally she could have a husband and a family to raise, and she was going to be the perfect wife, and she's going to be under the, outside of the covering of her father, Laban, and she's going to build this beautiful life with her husband. And what did she end up with? A husband that was pining for the sister that she had lived under the shadow of her whole life. She wanted to go to heaven, but she went to hell. That was how 
heartbreaking her situation was. And that's what happens when we put our hearts on things that are not of God. Or when we put our heart on good things that, are, that could be of God, but it supplants God, usurps God's rightful place in our hearts. And you know, the most sad thing is shown in the way that she names her children. Do you guys notice that? The plaintive, poignant cry of her heart came out in how she named her children. She named her first child Reuben. She said, because the Lord has heard me. Oh, sorry, has seen me. Reuben means to see. But in the same breath, the same sentence, she says, surely my husband will love me now. While she's reaching out to God, she's revealing her idolatry in, in putting her husband as the centerpiece of her hopes and dreams. And actually, when she named her son um, Reuben, she was calling out to be visible to her husband, calling out to be seen and to be significant by her husband. Second son, Simeon, to be heard. Crying out to be heard. Crying out for her words to hold meaning in her marriage. Crying out that she would mean something, that someone would hear her, that her husband would eventually love her and hear her. And then her third son, she names him Levi. Levi means to be attached. How heartbreaking is that? She's calling out for love and attachment and intimacy from her husband, the one that she saw as the savior to her situation, but in the end, crushed every hope and every dream that she had. Where we choose to put our hearts matter. Where we place the deepest parts of affection and desire matter. I don't know what the Spirit of God has been sharing to you today, showing in your heart today. I don't know if he's showing you things that have been put into the central positions that only God can reside. There are things that God had to break in me over the last few years as I went into full-time ministry. Things that I initially thought were great things, but he had to reveal to me that these great things were actually idols in my life. Before I went into full-time, I needed to let go of my dignity as a provider of the household. Because I wanted to have everything, every duck in place, every financial thing in place so that I could go in and serve God. But God told me that at that point, don't make it into an idol. Trust me in this. Are you ready to trust me in this? I cried because it was how I had defined my dignity as a man, as a man of the household, man of the family, to be able to protect and provide for my family. I had to let go of that definition in a way that was so heartbreaking. Another thing that he, he, he led me to, to let go of was a reliance on a, a mentor that I had looked up to so much. This person was one of the key reasons I even went full-time. Relied on her for, as a, such a strong reference point for my ministry, my spiritual life, my spiritual walk. She was my spiritual mother. I had to let go of my reliance on her and go to God directly. I wasn't used to it. It was such a painful process. While I was in Bible school, I had to let go of my need for significance. I was thinking, before I went to Bible school, I was doing so much more for God. I was able to earn so much more. I was able to impact the marketplace. I was able to get into more projects, involved in more projects in church. Now I feel like I'm not doing anything. Or rather, just very diminished. And God said, you've made an idol of significance. Why do you need to be significant? Significant. Why do you need to feel that you are the one that, that's making the impact? Oh my goodness. So crushing. So crushing. These things are things that when you grow up in the marketplace, you think they are good things. You're going to make an impact in the workplace. You're going to get promoted. You're going to get better salary, better bonuses. Oh, God had to break all these good things out of me so that I could 
find the best thing. I don't know what God is speaking to you. But let's see what Leah did. Her fourth child came. Her fourth child came. She doesn't even talk about her husband anymore. She says, this time, this time, I'm going to praise the Lord. You guys remember that just now when we read it. And she named the son Judah, which means to praise. As a symbol of a surrender to say, God, I choose to put you at the center now. I'm not going to be reliant on man or man-made constructs anymore. Not on societal expectations of where I'm supposed to be, how often I'm supposed to travel to Krabi and to Phuket, what my designer life is supposed to be, how much I'm supposed to earn, how much better I'm supposed to do in my career than my colleague, than my friends, than my peers. We are so bound sometimes, and God wants to give us freedom and say, put me at the center, put God at the center. If not, you're going to come away knocked out so many times by life. When you do not put your heart in the one thing, the one thing that can truly minister to the deepest part of your heart. No human can. No human can. Nothing but God. The created can only find their being, their reason, their purpose in the Creator. No other way. You can look as far as you want. You can find the most beautiful girl, the most handsome man, the richest person, I don't know. You won't be able to find that things in your life are aligned until you have truly, authentically, genuinely said, God, you take over. I can only rely on you. If not, every time you wake up, you're going to find Leah. I mean, I love Leah. <laughs> I mean, I sympathize with her. I have so much compassion for her. When I read about her, I cry. But figuratively speaking, if you don't get your heart in the right place, even no matter how much success you have, no matter how good your marriage is, no matter how good the man or woman you're married to is, if you put them in the place where God can is the only one that can reside, you will wake up in the morning and find Leah every single day. That's the truth. And you see Leah's defiance this time. She says, this time. This time, I'm going to praise God. This time, I'm going to say, my hopes and dreams are found in God. This time, I'm going to choose to put Him at the center of my world. This time. Before, uh, right now, I was thinking just to do an altar call for you guys at your seats. But as I sensed the defiance of Leah to say, I'm sick of what I escaped to. I'm sick of the past things that I relied on. And I'm going to be defiant in saying, I'm only going to move forward with one person as my center. This time, I'm going to praise Him. I want you to get out of your seats as a symbol of defiance to the things that were not of God and say, this time, this time, I'm going to follow you, God. This time, I'm going to put you at the center. So, as the worship team goes through this beautiful song, I want you guys to stand and I want you guys to come forward. If this is something that is stirring in your heart, that there are things that you have put your affections, your deepest adoration on that is meant to be God. I don't know what it is. What is it in the world? What are the things that society tells you you need to have? Things that your colleagues and your bosses tell you you need to have. I don't know. 
What has supplanted God in your life? What has usurped God's rightful position in your heart? If you feel something stirring, you need to let go of it. I want you to come forward. The ministers and the leaders will pray with you. Pray that prayer of release, of freedom to walk in our living hope, Jesus. So can everyone stand? We're just going to sing the song of worship. And if you feel the Spirit of God ministering to you, just come forward. Come forward and let the Spirit of God minister at the altar. Thank you.